This is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is May the 17th, 2019. This is episode 2441 of the Survival Podcast. And it's a good one today because it's an expert council Q&A show, the monster show of the week because it is... Friday, Friday, Friday. That's right. It's time to get these experts on deck for you. Here's what I got for you this week. A cool solar power workshop coming up in Tennessee with Sean Mills. Uh, I've got getting started as a shade tree mechanic with Derek Bonpietro. Now, you might wonder what a shade tree mechanic is. And what that just basically means is working on your own car under a tree. Or in your own garage or your backyard. Shade tree mechanic means the backyard mechanic. Now, sometimes those guys are people that, you know, do a job for their friends and family and stuff like that for a few bucks. But in general, that's what I mean by that. I can't think of a better way for it. Derek's starting a series he's going to be doing for you guys on kind of getting started and becoming comfortable with doing some of your own automotive and truck maintenance. Uh, then finding the right sleeping pad for hiking long distances, Jessica Dixie Mills. All about face masks from N65 to surgical and more with Nurse Amy. The difference between paleo and low-carb eating with Gary Collins. Some common misconceptions there. Using mulch from commercial sources with Jeff Lawton. Parenting young children into adults with Mike and Sue LaPreeze. And I'm going to give you some more thoughts on parenting and discipline uh, in, as part of my anchor segment in regards to a comment made about some of the past things I've said And if taking away things from your child because they are disobedient, is that stealing? We'll talk about that. And I'll have a little real quick closing segment today on something interesting that was going down on Facebook this morning with the concept of um, letting government define what a day means. So there's a movement in Vermont to change Columbus Day into Indigenous Peoples Day. And when I pointed out that if you're worried about that, you're worried about the wrong things, I think people didn't even understand the point. Why do we let government tell us what a day means for us? And why do we seek that government will make a day mean something different to other people on our behalf? We'll talk about that and how if you can't control what a day means to you, you literally have no liberty left. All of that and more in just a moment. Since it is a Friday, we have our new uh, segment of the week for Fridays, which is, well, YouTube channel of the week. I got a good one for you today. I bet you a lot of you guys are already subscribers to this channel. 734,000 subscribers. And the channel is called Exploring Alternatives. It's on minimalism, tiny houses, van life, off-grid living, travel, and more. And if you like that sort of thing, I think you'll like this channel. This is one of those channels that's done at kind of almost a network television level as far as production value. It is very, very well put together, very, very well done. It actually, if I have any criticism, and I always have some criticism of everything because it's called being a critical thinker, um, is that it might be a little too polished. I actually kind of like channels that aren't completely 100% polished. Like if it would fit right in on Discovery or something, it's a little bit beyond YouTube for me. Uh, and that one, this one's like that, but I like it anyway, and I think you will too. Um, and I do like that occasionally when they look at tiny house living, 
they do kind of a reality check, like it may not be for you or it may not be as easy as you think. It's not everything being polished and spit-shined from a standpoint of making it out like, well, the whole world should live this way, and it's just easy and wonderful. There are challenges to it, and they're honest about that. Uh, there's a really cool segment that's on the lead right now, Van Life, a young woman living in a van full-time as a, as a house for two years now. It's a pretty good segment. Uh, people living in houseboats, tiny houseboats, shipping container homes, life in a narrow boat. A narrow boat, all kinds of cool things, including a mini Earth ship. So check it out again. The channel is called Exploring Alternatives. And like everything that I tell you about, if it can be found online, there shall be a link in the show notes. On that note, real quick, before we get into uh, the first uh, expert segment, let me remind you, if you want to make sure you don't miss things like this, like you know, you to remember to come by the site and get the resources and stuff, Daily Mail, it's easy. Go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on subscribe, fill out a form. All you put is your name and email address. I will never share your information. I almost find it insulting at this point after 11 years. People even ask, but I'll, I'll go ahead and say, no, I don't share your information. Uh, everything I, the only thing I do is when I post something, I add it to the daily mail. And sometimes I'll say, well, I also added an e uh, added a, a video to the YouTube channel. And maybe I didn't post it on the blog, but I'll say there's a new video. Here it is. That's it. It's usually three to five sentences, each with a link. That's all the Daily Mail is. And if you don't like it, don't complain. I don't, you know, it doesn't hurt me when people do it. Like, I've been a customer of AWeber for like 18 years, I think, or something like that. Uh, they don't even look at my stats, I don't think, anymore. But I do see it. And it always, it always amazes me. Like, every week I get three or four people that instead of unsubscribing, they complain. They report me. He sent me an email and I didn't want one. Bullshit. If I sent you an email... You asked for it or I would have done it. All right, with that, let's go ahead and get on with this now. Oh, real quick, I just want to throw out another little plug here for uh, Pulling the Thread uh, with John Willis and his buddy Scully. Uh, it's a podcast they're doing over at SEO Tactical Gear. And uh, it's it's a kind of a – there's no real agenda day-to-day. -day. It's just feedback from their people. And, uh, you know, if you get offended by me, then – at all, it's probably not for you, but otherwise I think you'll enjoy it. It's just two guys shooting the shit and then having some pretty deep intellectual conversations at the same time. And uh, the reason I bring that up is just I was listening to it yesterday. I had to take the grandkids back to their mom. And so on the way on the way back, this is not something I would listen to with an eight-year-old. On the way back, I was listening to him, and I was just thinking, and he mentioned my show again. I was just thinking how John Willis has been listening to this show and sharing it with other people like when there was like a couple hundred people listening. And he's he's been with us that long, and he's always been a good friend of the community and the show. So check out what he's doing. And, you know, his, his gear, like the only criticism, if you want to make it a criticism you can give about his gear is it's overbuilt. And I don't consider that a criticism. I mean, if you want gear that will last forever, you want SOE gear. So check out John's podcast. Again, it's called Pulling the Thread, and it is on iTunes and other platforms. Uh, right. Let's uh, hear from Sean Mills. He's got a cool solar power workshop going down, and even if you can't get there, I think you'll find what he's talking about interesting. And listen to the money involved here. Like, what is the cost of learning how to do this yourself? And I don't mean the fee to go, because I don't even think he's charging to go. It's a, a kind of a get-together, camp-out thing. Um, but the money saved by learning to do your own solar installation. How about $22,000? Yeah. Uh, with that, Sean, tell us what's going on, man. 
Hey everybody, this is Sean Mills with HackMyCellar.com. I don't have a question to answer this week, but I have a couple announcements to make. Uh, the first one, I am hosting at my homestead in Clinton, Tennessee, which is just north of Knoxville, a TSP meetup on May 18th. We're going to uh, grill some food, smoke some food, and uh, just have a bunch of people over to get to know each other in the, in the local area. If you are in Middle East Tennessee, if you are in Western North Carolina or Eastern Kentucky, all those places make sense for a day trip down to Clinton uh, to, you know, just meet other people that are relatively local to your area in the TSP community, get to know each other, identify strengths that other people have that they may be able to add, and, uh, you know, just, just to, to, to have some fellowship with other uh, TSP members. So, again, that's May 18th. If you're interested in coming to that, we do have a TSP in Tennessee Facebook group. The event is posted there, uh, but if you're not on Facebook or if you're not in Tennessee and you want to get more details on that, you can send me an email at hackmysolar at gmail.com. Additionally, I am going to be putting a workshop together for August 16th through August 19th. And this is going to be a solar workshop. We are going to be doing some classroom uh, instruction on how solar works, uh, what the math is to design a system from soup to nuts, the whole nine yards. We'll talk about uh, battery banks. We'll talk about the panels themselves. We'll talk about inverters, different options for working with uh, the regulations around a grid tie system. Uh, any questions that anyone has about off-grid systems will answer, but the system that we're actually going to be installing during this workshop is going to be a grid tie system. My uh, entire system is going to cost about a little over $8,000, and that's going to retail, uh, what we're doing will retail for about $30,000. Uh, so the idea is giving people the knowledge uh, and, and the places to go get the materials needed to do a system like this to be fully compliant with all the NEC codes as well as any local or regional or state level codes that, that you may come across when trying to do a grid tie system. Uh, so again, the classroom portion is going to cover essentially everything that you might need to know to be able to design your own system. And then the hands-on portion is actually going to be building out the array, understanding how we connect the panels together, uh, whether we want to go in series or whether we go on parallel or a combination of the two. We'll talk a lot about battery banks. Uh, we'll talk about grid tie inverters. There's some new inverters on the market now that will actually allow you access to some of your solar power when the grid is down. So that's something that's new to the market. Um, that's what we're going to be putting in here. So we'll talk about how that works, what kind of things that you could potentially run off of that system based on your solar array size as well as utilizing some of that power to maybe even charge batteries so that overnight when the sun's not out, you have the ability to continue to run things in your house, keep your food, food cold, and that type of thing. We'll talk about how to do an energy audit for your home, and we'll talk about uh, strategies for saving on your energy usage because I preach this all the time. Anything that we can not utilize 
saves us so much more money when we go to design these solar systems. Um, the payback on my system is going to be about 14 months. And so we'll talk about how the math works and, and, and why we're able to get that really quick payback on, on that large of a system. Uh, if you're interested in that, the cost for that workshop is going to be $300. Uh, I've got a lot of under roof places for people to uh, throw up uh, tents or uh, you know air mattresses. Uh, we've got an 11 acre property here, so if people want to camp, there's that available. We've got a couple local uh, hotels. Um, if you're interested, send me an email at hackmysolar at gmail.com. Um, let me know if you'd be interested in camping on the site, if you'd be interested in going camping at a local campsite or even um, a local hotel, we can, we can help to get that type of thing set up. We do have the capabilities to have a couple RVs on the property as well. So uh, we can pretty much, anyone that wants to come, we can figure out a way to make it comfortable for you. Uh, again, that email is hackmysolar at gmail.com. If you're interested in the May 18th, just one day get together, meet up, or the August 16th through 19th solar workshop. Well, hey, with that, I'm completely out of questions. Get those questions in about solar energy, whether it be photovoltaic or solar thermal, or even rainwater catchment, living off the grid, all of those alternative technology ideas. Get those in the jack, and I'll get them answered for you. All right, guys, have a great weekend. All right, so uh, next up, I got a piece from uh, Derek Von Pietro on getting started as a shade tree mechanic. Hey, TSP listeners, this is Derek with AffordableDCGenerators.com. In the mobile studio today, heading into Boston to fix a half-century-old own-in unit in a parking garage. Should be a fun day. Doing a small mini-series on automotive repair, so we'll call this Vehicles 101. Going to break this down into a few parts. This part's going to be geared more towards the person that doesn't feel comfortable working on vehicles or maybe looking for a way to get more familiar with using tools and manuals, things like that. And then we'll move on to a little bit more in-depth stuff. So maybe you haven't worked on a vehicle before or you're looking for a way to kind of get familiar with yours, doing some basic maintenance, things like that. So that way you don't have to take it to a repair shop for basic repairs. Let's start by performing a walk around on your vehicle, making sure that you're street legal and safe out on the road. First thing we want to do is check your lights. This means we can turn our lights on, put the hazards on, maybe even put the car in reverse and set the parking brake, get out, do a walk around, make sure that all the lenses are good, make sure all the lights are working. Obviously, checking the brake lights is going to be difficult unless you have an assistant, so this is where a really good reflective surface comes into play. Next time you're pulling into a store, back in, that way you can see your reverse lights and your brake lights at the same time. Do this once in a while, keeps you from getting pulled over. Now, if you do have a bulb out, let's talk about going and fixing this problem without having to take it to a dealership. First thing we're going to want to do is figure out what bulbs are they. Really the easiest method is go to the owner's manual. It's probably in your glove box. Pull it open. Get familiar with the charts of where all the fuses are and where the bulbs are and what the numbers are and their ratings. Once you have this information, go on Amazon. Don't buy one locally from a big box store if you don't have to. If you can wait a couple of days, you're probably going to get it much cheaper. Grab an extra couple sets. So, for example, if you got a headlight out, buy a pair of them. More than likely, the other one's going to fail down the road shortly, so just replace both at the same time. Keep the one that's good as a spare, throw it back in the box, in your glove box. 
just in case something happens. Now, how do you get that bulb out? Very simple. Owner's manual is going to be the go-to. YouTube's probably going to be a second good one as well. I would safely bet that the vast majority of vehicles, somebody's got some video somewhere of how to pull out a headlight or a taillight out of your car. Get familiar with changing bulbs. It'll keep you from getting a ticket or possibly having to pay someone $30, $40 to replace it on your next inspection. While we're doing a walk around, we should be looking at tire pressures as well. Again, familiarize yourself where the door placard is with the tire pressures or in the manual. You, we should also be looking at the tread depth. So tread depth gauge or penny works or just visually looking to make sure that they're wearing even and that you have plenty of tread depth left. So this is your most basic walk around. Some quick visual items that you can look at to make sure that your car is safe for the road. So now that you've walked around the vehicle, let's pop the hood open, get familiar with those items. What we're looking for are fluid checkpoints. Now a modern car is not going to have power steering fluid because most have electric assist. So there's no longer a pump and a reservoir to look at. But we still have washer fluid, engine oil, transmissions. Modern vehicles do not have dipsticks or require a special service tool in order to check the automatic transmission level. Not a problem. We'll cover this at a later date, but this is something we should be checking. So now that we've identified where the fluid checkpoints are, we need to look at what kind of fluid it takes. Again, the owner's manual is the best bet. Automatic transmissions and engines nowadays typically take very specific fluids. So there's no more throw some Dextron 3 in it if it's an automatic transmission or some 10W30 if it's an engine. Those days are long gone. So we want to make sure that we're putting the right fluid in it, even if it calls for buying it from a dealership or getting the OEM factory fluid online. Cannot go wrong with that. I would highly avoid putting in any kind of generic stuff that fits all makes and models when it comes to engines and transmissions and power steering systems. Once you've identified what kind of fluid your vehicle takes, keep an extra quart or two on hand. If you're doing an oil change, buy an extra quart, throw it in the trunk. Even if your vehicle doesn't consume oil, it's always good to have some extra laying around. We're also going to want to inspect the belts, hoses, and battery while we're in there. Battery is just a quick check to make sure it's not corroded, everything's tight. You can throw a voltmeter on it if you're not familiar with using that because that's a basic check to get familiar with. You want to make sure that we're at 12.6 volts. Belts should be tight, not dry rotted. And this is one of the basic things that we should be inspecting and replacing. So, again, go to manualslib.com or Google search how to check the belt and how to adjust it. Probably going to have an automatic adjuster, so we're going to be looking for the right tools to pull the tension off of it and swapping the belt. We're also going to look for a diagram. If you pull the belt off and you remember, yeah, I think it goes this way, guess what? Ten minutes later, you're probably going to forget. So take a photo of it with your camera, or we're going to look in the book for the correct routing. Again, this is a basic repair that you can do that can probably save you over $100 by not taking it to a shop. Once you've got the belt swapped out, keep the old one. Make sure you know the tools and carry the tools on hand to change that. Throw it in the trunk. That way you're good to go. If the belt snaps, you've got a spare kicking in the trunk with the tools to swap it out on the side of the road. Up next, we're going to slide on under that vehicle and take a look at some suspension and driveline checks, so stay tuned for that. I'm really excited to announce that the AffordableDCGenerators.com store is officially open. We've got kits ready to ship for $249. Free shipping for TSP members. Just use coupon code TSPFREE. If you've got a boat, RV, battery bank, or heavy equipment, and you need to charge batteries up without using a large gen set or idling a big motor, you definitely want to check out the affordable DC generator kit. A fully assembled kit after you purchase an engine and alternator is going to run you under $600. So check us out. Drop me a line if you need some kind of custom connection made. Stay tuned for the next part. Catch you guys later. And next up, we have a question for Jessica Dixie Mills on sleeping pads for long-distance hiking. This is for the person that's going to go out and spend, you know, a couple days, a couple weeks, or even a couple months on the trail. Jessica, how do we make sure that we're comfortable when we're sleeping on the trail? Hey, 
TSP listeners, Dixie here from Homemade Wanderlust over in YouTube land to answer a question about sleeping pads for backpacking. This question comes in from Tom who asks, what kind of pad do you sleep on during your trips? Also, do you have any techniques for getting a good night's rest on the hard ground? Details. We are planning a section hike on the Continental Divide Trail in Wyoming this summer, and I have a hard time getting good rest on the hard ground. I'm an older man who in overall is in good shape, but I have artificial hips and a couple of fused discs in my neck, and I struggle to get comfortable when sleeping on the ground. Well, Tom, I totally understand. Getting a good night's rest on the hard ground while backpacking is definitely a difficult thing to do. And people don't realize how important it is to get a good night's sleep so that you're able to perform and actually enjoy yourself during your trip. So I think it's awesome y'all are getting out there on the CDT in Wyoming. I hope it's the Wind River Range. That area is absolutely breathtaking and not just because you're at a high elevation and there's no oxygen, but because it's beautiful when you look around. So the short answer to your question is the pad that I've used on two and a half of my three through hikes is the Thermarest Neoair Extra Light and it's an inflatable sleeping pad. You can blow it up pretty easily using your mouth. They have little battery operated pumps that I've seen people use as a luxury item that might weigh, you know, a few ounces or something like that. But to some people it's worth it, especially because it doesn't put so much moisture in the pad when you blow it up. So you don't run the risk of having it get funky on the inside. They have different sizes in this particular inflatable pad. Uh, I use the short one that stretches from my head to my knees because I like to cut off weight anywhere I can and, and shave some ounces. So from the regular length to the short length, you save four ounces. So the short weighs eight ounces. The regular is 12 ounces. And they also have a long version of the sleeping pad. And then they, they have a women's pad, which is a little more narrow, but it has a higher R value. I'll get into the R value in a minute. Uh, but anyway, the common options for backpacking sleeping pads in general are closed cell foam pads, self-inflating pads, and then inflatable pads. I started the Appalachian Trail with a closed cell foam pad. They're indestructible. They're really nice for taking breaks. You can just throw them on the ground and you don't have to worry about them popping. Many people carry them rolled up on the outside of their pack because they're kind of bulky. They're cheap. They run anywhere from $10 to $50 or so, but they are awful for anybody but back sleepers. So if you sleep on your side or if you flip over to your stomach, then chances are your hips will be sore. And I had that happen to me when I was on the Appalachian Trail. I hit New Jersey and I am generally a side sleeper. And when I got there, my hips were just hurting so bad. I wasn't sleeping at night and I was miserable. So I went ahead and invested in an inflatable pad, which I'll get into in a minute. But the next step up from those closed cell foam pads are self-inflating pads. They're still kind of common on trail, mainly for people who are doing section hikes and aren't quite as conscious about weight, base weight as through hikers. But those, the self-inflating pads, you know, you just open the valve and unroll them and they pull air into the pad. You might still want to blow it up a little bit to give yourself a little more cushion. So that is kind of nice and convenient, but they're still rather bulky. And for sleeping pads in general, that's going to be probably your heaviest option. 
by the time I pay for a self-inflating sleeping pad, I'm just going to go ahead and pay a little bit extra and get the full-on inflatable pad, which is what I did on the Appalachian Trail. I ended up investing $175 into that NeoAir Extra Light that I was talking about. And I haven't had any regrets because it's lightweight, it's compact, it just fits in my pack really well. And you do run the risk of having them pop. And if an inflatable sleeping pad pops, then it's like basically sleeping on the ground. Most of them are going to come with a repair kit though. And I've had to use a repair kit, a little patch kit on the Pacific Crest Trail one time and then on the Continental Divide Trail one time. So that was on a trip that was over 2,000 miles. So they're a little bit more durable than people probably give them credit for. Now, I'm not saying that the NeoAir Extra Light is going to work perfectly for you. Some men prefer wider sleeping pads, so there are different brands and different options. They might be a little heavier, but again, if you're getting that good sleep at night, then it might be worth it for you. I would suggest ordering a sleeping pad on Amazon so you have that 30 days or so to return it. That way, if you blow it up and lay on it at home and you don't like it, you can always return it. Or if you have an REI near you, then you can go in and try them out in the store. Probably most outdoor stores will have that available to you. REI has a particularly awesome return policy, though. You can return any item for up to a year, even if you've used it, no questions asked. So at least go in and try something out if you can at a gear store, and then you can always order it online from Amazon or REI. Now, I want to say just a quick something about R-Value when you're looking at sleeping pads. For a three-season backpacking sleeping pad, it's suggested that you have a minimum R-Value of two. And the R-Value references a pad's ability to retain warmth of your body in the night while you sleep. So the higher the R-Value, the warmer the sleeping pad is going to be. And I suggest when people are just getting out that they start with three-season backpacking, so going in the spring, summer, and fall. Now, if you're going to be hiking in wintry conditions, then you're definitely going to want a sleeping pad that has a higher R value than that. They make this new sleeping pad. Uh, Thermarest has a NeoAir Uberlite that I think is the most lightweight inflatable pad that I've seen with an R value of two. The regular length one weighs 8.8 ounces, and that is lighter than the closed cell phone pad that I had on the Appalachian Trail. I'm going to go with the short one on this again when I go out for my sections that I'm filling in on the PCT where there were fire closures. I'm going to use the short version of that, and it's six ounces. I'm just like, oh, I'm so excited to try it out. But you asked what I used. I have been using the NeoAir Extra Light, but now I think I will be transitioning to the Uber Light. What pad you're going to want in particular will depend on personal preference. You might not like inflatable pads that are noisy. Um, a lot of people say that the NeoAir Extra Light sounds like you're sleeping on a bag of Fritos. You might not like the width of that pad. You might want one that's wider. The price might not fit your budget, of course, and you know weight will play into it also. But for the most comfort that you can get at night, I'm going to say that an inflatable sleeping pad is your best bet. And watch filling it up all the way because then sometimes that makes it kind of too hard just like the ground is. Um, so I kind of blow mine up and then I might let a little bit of air out. 
Now, another option that does not have to do with sleeping on the ground, but I'm just going to suggest it because if there are other people out there who have some back issues, this might be their way to get back into backpacking, and that is hammocking. A lot of people who have had issues with back pain and problems sleeping on the ground go to the trees and they find that they get the best rest that they have on trail ever. There are a lot of different YouTube channels on, well, YouTube <laughs> that you can find with information about hammock camping. So if you just look up hammock camping or, you know, backpacking hammocks, then a lot of information will come up about that. That might not be something that you're interested in, but just figured I'd throw it out there. If anyone else has questions about backpacking, you want to learn more about it, or you'd like to follow my adventures, then be sure to check out my channel on YouTube, Homemade Wanderlust. And thank you again so much, Tom, for the question. I hope that y'all enjoy your trip. And y'all get any more backpacking questions that you have or vlogging, etc., into me and, well, into Jack, and I'll be sure to get those answers back to y'all. Bye, y'all! Okay, great stuff from Jessica. Next up, we're going to talk about an important piece of medical gear for your preparedness kits, face masks. And we're going to have a pretty in-depth conversation about them and dispel some misconceptions as well and get a better understanding of them with Nurse Amy. Nurse Amy, take it away. And by the way, I am really excited. I'm only about a month away from hanging out with Nurse Amy and Doc Bones on the beach in Florida. Hi, I'm Amy Alton. I'm an advanced registered nurse practitioner from Survival Top 50's Reader's Choice website, doomandbloom.net, with over a thousand articles, podcasts, and videos on medical preparedness. And together with my husband, Joe Alton, MD, we're the authors of the Book Excellent Award winner in medicine, The Survival Medicine Handbook, now in its 700-page third edition, and the brand new book, Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, The Layman's Guide to Available Antibacterials in Austere Settings, and the designers of an entire line of medical and first aid kits at store.doomandbloom.net. Well, today's question for the expert council is from Luke in Michigan. He says, Hi, Amy. Could you explain the differences in N95 masks? Background. I've been reading both your survival medicine handbook, thank you so much, that's a side note, <laughs> and Alton's antibiotics lately, and decided I really needed to add more N95 masks to my medical supplies. And while shopping on Amazon, I see that the surgical masks are cheaper than even the standard 3M N95 masks without exhaust vents. If I'm looking for these specifically for cold and illness prevention, should I be concerned with any one type more than another? Well, there's a lot of great resources about face masks. You can find some on the CDC and also FDA. So you can take a look at that. And I did get uh, some of this information from there. So if you want something written, that would be a great place to print it or just sort of look at this again. Face masks and N95s are actually examples of personal protection equipment that are used to protect the wearer from liquid and airborne particles contaminating the face. They are part of an infection control strategy. And if you guys paid any attention whatsoever to when we had the Ebola outbreak, you definitely saw different kinds of face protection. Uh, they started off with generally these face masks, which 
which we'll discuss in a second, moved up into a stronger protection. And eventually they had on these full ventilator masks that had filters and machines attached to them. By the way, those are super expensive. So let's discuss the simple thing first, the face mask. That's actually a loose fitting, which is unfortunately one of the reasons why it is not great or perfect for protecting you. They are disposable and they create just a physical barrier between the mouth and your nose of the wearer against potential contaminants in the the environment that's just around you. Face masks are not to be shared and may be labeled as surgical, isolation, dental, or medical procedure masks. They also may come with or without a face shield. Again, a lot of this has changed for your access. Normally, those were hospital supplies that were harder to get. They're made with different thicknesses and with different abilities to protect you from contact with liquids. These properties can also affect how easily you can breathe through the face mask. You may see three-ply, which makes it a little bit easier to breathe, but it gives you a little less protection all the way up to, I've even seen six-ply. And it helps determine how well that face mask is going to protect you. If worn properly, in other words, with a good fit, a face mask is meant to help block large particle droplets, splashes, sprays, or splatter that can contain germs, which you're talking about viruses and bacteria. Keeping it from reaching your mouth and nose, face masks may also help reduce exposure of your saliva and respiratory secretions, think coughing or sneezing, to others, so it blocks that. While a face mask may be effective in blocking splashes and large particle droplets, a face mask by design does not filter or block very small particles in the air that may be transmitted by coughs, sneezes, and certain medical procedures. Face masks do not provide complete protection from germs and other contaminants because of that loose fit between the surface of the face mask and your face. Face masks are not intended to be used for more than once. So no, you can't recycle them, you can't clean them, you can't reuse them. They are absolutely to be disposed of after you use it. If your face mask is damaged or soiled, or if breathing through that mask becomes difficult, you should remove the face mask and discard it safely and replace it with a new one. To safely discard your face mask, place it in a plastic bag and put it in trash. Always wash your hands after handling the used mask. Now, N95 respirators are protective devices specifically designed to achieve a very close facial fit, unlike the surgical masks we were just talking about, and are also very efficient at filtering airborne particles. There are special tests to determine a respirator's level of protection, and that's where we're going to discuss this letter N and the number 95. And there's an institute that actually certifies masks to tell you what level of protection you're going to get from them, and that is the NIOSH, which is under the CDC, Centers for Disease, They are the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health. So that's what that means, N-I-O-S-H. And again, it provides a certification so you know what you're getting from the mask you're buying. And 95 medical masks are a class of disposable, they're called respirators. I know that sounds weird, but that's actually the name of this kind of mask that have at least 95% efficiency against particles larger than 0.3 microns in size. I think few people understand just
just how tiny a micron is. There are charts out there. You should look it up because it's really interesting and how teeny, teeny, tiny a micron is. But the N in the N95 stands for non-oil resistant. There are also R95s, which are oil resistant, and P95, oil proof mass. So that's where you're getting those different letters, the N, the R, and the P. And the uh, R and the Ps are mostly for industrial and agricultural uses. N95 masks protect against many contaminants, but are not 100% protective. Although used less frequently, N99 masks, which again give you 99% effectiveness, and in 100 mass are 99.7. Not quite 100, but I guess as close as you're going to get are also available. If properly fitted, again, very important, the filtration capacities of the N95 respirators exceed those of face masks. However, even a properly fitted N95 respirator does not completely eliminate the risk of illness or death. You are not 100% protected. One thing that you have to remember about these masks is they're not designed for children or people with facial hair. So all of you folks out there with mustaches and a lot of beard hair, if you don't get a proper fit, you can't achieve the proper filtration. So if you're using it with smaller people or People with facial hair, you're not going to get the full protection. There is a way to check fit. Uh, When you put these masks on, usually they have a metal piece across the nose. You're going to want to pinch that on your nose and fit that to the shape of the bridge of your nose, the side of your nose, and across your cheeks. You're going to want to pull the mask down if it actually has like an accordion effect, down underneath your chin and onto your neck so that it's fully opened. You don't want to have a crunched up mask that is only barely covering your nostrils and your mouth. You want to have it as wide as possible. You're going to want to make sure that you put those, there are loops that you put them over the ears. And if there's ties, you tie the top one towards the top of your head and the bottom one towards the back of your head, just above the nape of your neck. If you have properly fit your mask, you can breathe in and your mask will actually suck in. You'll see it collapse a little bit if you suck real hard. If you breathe in real hard and you don't get that depression, that means you got some leakage and you need to refit that mask and make sure it's on as well as possible. Now, the FDA has cleared certain filtering face piece respirators for use by the general public. To work as expected, the N95 respirator requires a proper fit to your face like we've just discussed. Please make sure you're checking it, adjust it if you need to. The CDC does not generally recommend face masks and respirators for use in home or community settings. However, they may be appropriate for people for increased risk of severe illness. Let's say if you have some immune problems or if you're just in a household or near people who may have influenza or other respiratory diseases, it can help. Again, you're not going to achieve 100%, but it definitely can help. So that's what they recommend for the public. There are um, higher grade masks that have vents in them. It allows for easier breathing. The one thing about the vents is if you need a sterile environment, let's say you're in a surgical suite, they don't allow those ventilated ones because they don't want you to exhale out of them. 
there for preventing things from coming in. They're not as good for preventing things from going out. So if you're operating on a patient, they don't want the surgeon to be breathing into the patient's open cavity. So there are very, very special ones for healthcare settings. So what's your strategy? You'll need both standard, the surgical mask, and some N95s as part of your medical supplies. I'd recommend getting a significant number of each. You can use them as bartering if you need to. I would say you can never have too many, really, and any extras, again, would be really great for bartering. There's no absolute standards in regards to who wears what in the sick room. What we generally recommend is that the person who is sneezing and coughing, in other words, the sick person, puts on a surgical mask, either all the time, that would be difficult because they're already having trouble breathing, probably from a stuffy nose or a sore throat or congestion in the lungs, but put that on when the caregiver is about to come in. That will kind of help prevent some of those droplets from being thrown onto the caregiver. And then the caregiver should be putting on the N95 because, again, you're going to get some filtration of those viruses from the patient who's sneezing or coughing so that they won't breathe it in. What you want to prevent is your caregivers from getting sick because they're the ones who have to take care of the sick people. So remember, your highest priority is to protect yourself and the healthy members of your group. Plan out a sick room. And we have talked a lot about a sick room. You can look up articles and we've done podcasts on it. It's even in our book. Look up sick rooms, figure out where you're going to put that and also what other supplies you're going to need besides the mask. Think of gloves, aprons, eyewear we discussed, antiseptics, and definitely pay uh, careful attention to every aspect of hygiene because guys, your survival might just depend on it. Thank you so much. It was wonderful to talk to you guys. I know you don't hear from Nurse Amy very often and please be safe and healthy. All right, good stuff from Amy. Uh, next up, got a question for Gary Collins. It's actually a person kind of taking paleo eating and low-carb dieting and putting them together. Gary, let's kind of sort this out. Hey everyone, this is Gary Collins, creator of the SimpleLifeNow.com, where I discuss all things simple living, going off the grid, living off the grid, living in an RV, running a business in an RV, running a business off the grid, and now decluttering your life. Be on the lookout for that new book. It's coming. It's the third book in the Simple Life series. It's on its way. So be on the lookout for that. And again, you guys, to stay in touch, sign up for my newsletter on the website. Now, going starting paleo, there I love this question because there is some confusion in it. Um, congratulations on trying to go paleo and introducing it. It takes a while to get used to all the principles and understanding, you know, just understanding what foods to eliminate and how to eliminate them because paleo is basically an elimination diet, and that's how I teach it. You know, the elimination of grains beans, and dairy as they're the most inflammatory food. Oh, gosh, butchered that. Inflammatory foods. It's early in the morning uh, for humans today. And we, we don't want to get into the whole, you know, organic and, you know, heirloom and all that. It's just that's it's a basic premise in today's uh, diet and understanding nutrition. Now, trying to stay under 100 grams grams of carbs or less, that is low carb. Um, low carb is either 100 grams of carbohydrates a day or less, 
or when you're really into it, it's 50 grams of carbohydrates or less. I always say if you're very active, athletic, it's 100 grams. If you're more sedentary, don't get as much movement, it's 50 grams. But that's more low carb. And what you have to realize is paleo, I call it right carb. So your carbohydrate balance will be depending upon your energy expenditures. And that's how I do it. I do not count carbs. I do not count calories. I don't pay attention to anything. I just eat when I'm hungry. I eat the proper foods and I move. I mean, um, I'm glad you're using an app. Be careful with that stuff. It tends to get you sidetracked. Um, if it's working for you, though, don't change it. Use it. But for me, it's about, you know, you want to get to the point where it's second nature. You know, it's intuition. You understand what your body's saying to you. So with the 100 grams, if you are losing weight, even though you're struggling to extend your 100 grams a day or you're leaning out, don't worry about it. That's how I look at it. Once you start putting on pounds and that, you better reevaluate your carbs and go, okay, did I just add something in? Because what a lot of people do when they change their diet, and this I've dealt with this with a lot of people on paleo, is we forget me included, that you start to slowly bring in these old habits and old foods that you eliminated and you didn't even really know you were doing it. Next thing you know, you're like, holy cow, I'm eating all kinds of crap that I shouldn't be eating. And you kind of have to regauge and reevaluate and kind of look at everything you're eating. So I hope that helps. That's the easiest way to understand it. I know there's a lot of confusion in, uh, when you're talking paleo, primal, low carb, high fat, ketogenic diet, you know, it's, it gets high protein. It, there's a ton of different pieces, but remember all those pieces fit into paleo is the best way to look at it. Um, again, guys, I'm an MSB member, uh, a business member. So you get 10% off and free shipping off your orders at www.thesimplelifenow.com. I guess my only real quick add as to why this happens, why these two things get mashed together, is because in many ways they are so similar. And the reason that they're similar is if you adhere to a strict paleo eating regime, um, you're going to be low carb. At least you're going to be low carb compared to the average American diet. And even compared to the average American diet where you're talking about somebody that avoids processed foods, pays attention to what they're eating, and eats relatively healthy, you're going to be low carb compared to that. Will you be at the, you know, Gary talks about 50 grams a day of carbohydrates. The way I look at that is uh, when you're in an interventionist phase with low carb, you're going to be, you might even be way lower than that. You're going to be, depending on your goals, where you're at and what you're trying to do, somewhere between 9 and 18 carbohydrates per meal based on three meals a day. So you could be uh, as low as 27 grams of carbs or as high as roughly close to 60. And one of the things that's really, really important with that during those interventionist phases is that does not mean that since you have, let's say, you know, let's say it's 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 50 carbs that you can have in a day. That's what you're on. You can't have no carbs all day long and then shove 50 carbs into dinner and and, and have it work, because you're still going to have spikes in blood sugar, which is what you're trying to avoid. Both of these ways of eating uh, work 
for many reasons, but one of the primary reasons is specifically for the weight loss is the reduction in carbohydrate. So both of them end up with low-carbohydrate eating patterns, but they get there by different means. One does it solely for the sake of the carbohydrates. The other do, does it through uh, selection of the type of food that you're consuming. All right, next up, let's talk about mulch. I, I get lots of questions about commercial mulch, mulch from trees, from the neighbor, and the upshot always being, and, and I think that as much as I love them, Pain in the ass, Paul Wheaton, is the biggest reason for this concern. Uh, I'm going to get some kind of icky gick if I use mulch from landscapers or something like that. I've answered this question so many times. I pushed it over to Jeff, uh, Jeff Lawton. I figured if Jeff answered this question, maybe you'd believe it. So let's, uh, let's tune in with probably the most switched-on permaculture designer in the world on using mulch from commercial sources. Hi, Jeff Lawton here coming to you from Australia. And we have a question here about importing um, municipal compost and uh, mulches from uh, unknown sources and whether they can be contaminated with uh, uh, chemicals, herbicide, pesticide, all those sort of things. And um, some people have had bad experiences with importing mulch that's um, been brought in, um, bulk mulch that's been recently sprayed. Now, um, you may you may be unfortunate enough to get mulch that is just been sprayed. So what's happened is the um, um, the material that's um, just died, in other words, it's just um, dried off after being sprayed, is brought in as a bulk mulch. Uh, that's pretty rare, um, I would imagine. Uh, most people are going to cut uh, fresh mulch. Um, you could possibly have herbicide sprayed onto a grain crop. It's a light dilution that they spray at the last minute and some of that, um, and that's mainly done to just pop a few extra grains in because it is uh, a stress response to the grain. Um, and uh, you may have some uh, residue in the straw, but uh, I myself haven't heard of that very often. Um, people usually cut... Um, living mulch and if it's alive it's not drenched in herbicide it might have a tiny bit of residue but not much um, and and that will get taken up in the decomposition cycle um, all toxins um, when they go through a decomposition cycle get locked up with the carbon molecule now if you're buying in compost municipal compost may have different blends of not the best materials, might be a little bit of toxicity there, but the very fact that it's gone through a life cycle of composting, composting being um, a whole massive number and diversity of, of organisms processing organic matter from one form to another so it becomes a, a humus, means that it can't be that toxic for all those life, um, living elements to do their job. Um, so, and if, if that's the case and you've got an actual compost in your hand that's gone through process, you could look at it with a microscope to see how diverse the organisms are and how plentiful they are. Um, but basically you've got, um, organic matter that has been processed into a humus by massive amounts of life. So it can't be that toxic. And in the process, minor amounts of toxicity within the process actually get locked up 
as um, long chain carbon molecules. Carbon is the main element of compost, it's the bulk element, and uh, life is based in compost, and compost is made out of living things. If it's lived, it can live again, is a classic compost saying. So um, those elements based in carbon kind of end up with a carbon composition that's almost like a, a, a sponge. It, it, the carbon takes in the other elements that are combined in all these life and death cycles through the process of composting and, and minor amounts of tox, toxins, toxic material, toxic elements are bonded to the carbon molecule, making a long chain molecule and they become inert. So if you've got a reasonable compost, you shouldn't be too bad. And most mulches you'll find will be okay. Um, it may be the case that you, you've got somebody who's just sprayed a whole paddock and then bailed it up for mulch. Now, why you would do that and waste the money on the herbicide, I have no idea, because why wouldn't you just bail it up? You're not going to spend any, spend any extra money just bailing it up. Um, and, and if it's a crop, then you can't put that much herbicide on it to kill the whole crop before you harvest the grain, if it's a grain crop. You can put a minor dilution on, and there's a lot of talk about this today with gluten intolerance being bonded up, and the gluten being the place where the herbicide is bonded up. Um, so, you know, they put a mild dilution over a grain crop um, just to give it a little bit of a, a hit, and its survival mechanism is to pop a few more grains. Um, a lot of the um, major herbicides like glyphosate are actually growth hormones, and the plants grow themselves to death. They grow so fast, their cell structure can't keep up, and they will. But that's not the dilution they put on just before harvest. They put a minor dilution on, so there's a mild amount of growth stress. The plants pop one or two more grains on each head, and it's worth the money to do it for the grain grower. Totally immoral thing, in my opinion, but anyway... But that's going to be a very small amount and that's going to get locked up in the decomposition cycle of the mulch itself, especially if you're including compost in your mulching cycles. So compost is the answer. Carbon is your sponge. And, and, and I think it's going to be a very, very odd occasion when you're going to get someone who's paid the money to spray a load of herbicide down and then bail up the material to sell it um, as mulch. Um, but there might be the odd occasion. And that's about all I've got to say about this one. You know, I agree. And I think that there is some risk that some of the herbicide-ready agricultural mulches can be a, a, a problem. And Jeff did a good, good, a good job of explaining why it should be moderate, even if, if it is. Um, however... Most of the mulch that people are talking about when they worry about this ends up being uh, hardwood and softwood mixed tree mulches from landscapers and things like that. And while you know there's the true green chemlon craze in America because we've lost our minds about what's actually important and where our money should go, um, we don't spray trees. Okay, we don't spray trees with that stuff. And they don't generally come out and spray true green chemlon on top of leaves if it's leaves that have been raked up in the fall or whatever either. So the, the risk there is, is almost nothing. And as Jeff said, in the composting process, the majority of these toxins do bind with carbon 
and they become inert and they're unable to do much of anything at all. With straw, I do generally, when I find a new source of straw, do what I call the bean test. And all I do to do the bean test is I plant two pots with any kind of bean. String beans, runner beans, I don't care, some beans. And the reason is that the legumes are the most susceptible uh, plant that we know of, really, to, uh, unless they're Roundup ready, to herbicides. And then what I'll do is I'll soak some straw in some water. And then I'll use the water from the soaked straw to water one of the buckets and a known clean source of water to water the other uh, bucket. If the one that's being watered with the straw causes the beans to grow malformed or kills them or whatever, and the other ones grow just fine because it's not science unless there's a control. So you got to use the same soil in both of them, the same beans in both of them. You have no idea if something happened to it. But you get one growing like gangbusters and the other one messed up, then I would avoid that source specifically for mulching. For composting, I don't worry anywhere near as much as Mr. Wheaton does. And anybody that's been to my property can tell you it's not hurting me at all to do that. Uh, with that, let's take another one. This one on growing children into adults with Mike and Sue LaPrez. This is Michael and Sue LaPrez with HaloBySue.com. Designing the life you'd love to live for the expert counsel. Hey, Jack. Hey, TSB community. Today's question is from Matt in New Hampshire. Question. How do you want your relationship with your children to grow as they turn into adults? And what do you do to help that happen? Background. A lot of the work that you do is counter to the current societal norms. One that I haven't heard you speak to yet is your approach to your children's transition into adulthood. The societal norm is that your children move away from you and you see them twice a year for holidays. So Matt has young children. Great question. And then he asks, do you agree? He would like to have his kids living close to him, encouraging them that, but he wants to be autonomous. And what have you done and what are you doing now as you continue to grow your family? Well, wanting to keep your kids close is a really noble effort. But I think probably a better thing is to help them on their journey. Yes. So we are friends with our adult children. And we'll talk about that a little bit more later. But our door for us, our door is always open for them, and they know that. We have a large house, and our kids over time have moved in and out. But when they move back in, we expect them to contribute and get back on their feet and go back to work. But uh, also on occasion, our son Eric and his wife, they sold a house, and they were waiting for the house that they were building to be uh, finished constructing. And so for about two months, they lived with us. And so we had to make some adjustments, but it turned out really well, and we had a great time. Yeah, our 20-year-old just moved back in, and he mows the yard, and he does lots of dishes really fast. And so him moving in is such a benefit to our family because he's a great contributor, and he holds little people. He holds little people, yeah. yes. And it's about uh, – the, the key thing is really it's about freedom. Yeah, you got to cut that umbilical cord because every stage of life offers – you want to offer as much autonomy – to each of your children as you possibly can. And with adopted kids, it's you know cutting that umbilical cord uh, in a... It's a symbolic thing. Symbolic thing, thing yes. So um, one of the things that I do as a dad, and something that I've thought about from the time our eldest was young, was the stages that I wanted to go through. So I start off as a dad. I'm a nurturer. I want my kids to know that they're loved and that they're safe and that this is an environment, this is home. It's a place that they can always come back to that's safe. And then it's instilling discipline, and part of that is really helping them to develop their own self-discipline. I believe it was Jordan Peterson who said, if your child is four years old and other children want to be their friends, you've been a successful parent. And then we move on to the coaching stage, 
And part of that includes some uh, correction and encouragement and helping them to learn skills and to grow. And so part of that is coaching. And then you move to the advisor stage. And the advisor stage is interesting because... You have to do one important thing. You have to do one important thing. You have to wait for them to ask for advice. Yeah. If you're giving them advice without them asking, you're, you're not still advising. Coaching. Yes. <laughs> and then the last step for us is they become friends. So our daughter and her husband went to uh, Galveston to celebrate their birthdays, and they invited us down. And so we went down to Galveston. We just got back from a four-day weekend. So eight of our ten kids were there, but it's yeah. hard to get everybody anywhere for us. Right. <laughs> So it's not an age thing when you go through the nurture, discipline, coach, advisor, friend stages. It's a stage thing for each of your children. And that's where paying attention and having conversations and family meetings and all that contribution that conversation does for those stages. So you know where you're at as a parent and you know where your kid is at. So you have to ask yourself, do you want the state to own your children? Do you want your children to feel like somebody owns them? I don't think so. So the way you do that is you live as though you don't own them either because you don't. They are their own person. Yes. And so one of the things is you have to watch also how you speak. Uh, there are people that we know that we've heard them say things like, our kids cost so much or they take up so much of my time. I'm just driving them places all the time. I'm just a taxi service. That's all they think I am. And so the kids hear that, and that has an impact on their lives. Yeah, so we have people our age whose kids are in their 30s that are married and are not going to have children. And when we look at those parents, one of the things that we see is they were both busy doing other things and then dropping their kids off places and not really sitting and having that conversation with them. Yes, so we both grew up in homes with our grandparents living with us. Yes, yeah, so fun. It was great. And um, unfortunately, my grandfather died when I was young. Yeah, so our grandparents died at our house, too. Yes. I'd like to say. Yeah. So it was part of the life thing. And um, and my mom lived with us. For 11 years until she got remarried at the yeah. age of 76. 76. You're not too young. Yeah. <laughs> or too old. So we'll give you a quick rundown for us of, of what our relationship like is with our kids and what they're doing. So do you want to start? Yeah. So Eric and his wife live in Austin. They have a two-year plan to move to Colorado, and their mother-in-law is moving with them. His wife needs to finish her nursing contract, and the mother-in-law needs to finish her school contract, and then they're going to all go up there and homestead. And we're excited about that because we like that kind of thing. Yeah, so they're going to build a homestead. They're going to buy land and uh, settle in there. They've got our, one of our granddaughters lives with them, and it's a great opportunity for them if both for both of their careers. Our next child is Jessica, and uh, she's divorced from an abusive spouse. Uh, really sad situation. Um, her and, her and her daughter live with us. Uh, initially, part of that was for safety. Uh, and then as time has gone by, it's been great for my granddaughter that she has her grandfather and uncles as, you know, male figures in her life. Yes, and you don't want to go home alone with your kid every night with no one to talk to, no one to take care of your kid if you've had a rough day at work. So the next one, Rhea and her husband, um, he is where he is from, and he is not moving. He's surrounded by his family, and we love that because they are really good to them. And Rhea and I have a standing Tuesday phone call when she's driving home from work, and we talk other times during the week, but that's our one for sure time that we talk. Yeah, and they live about three hours, three and a half hours away from us. And then there's our son Greg and his wife, 
and they're buying property further out in the country. So they're going to be further away from us than they are now. They're about 30 minutes away, 20 minutes away now. They'll be further away, but they're living their life and doing the things they want to do. And then yeah, so I'd like to say of those children, they are buying property and we are welcome to come and build a place there at some point. Yes, and our other six children still live at home with us. Yes, they do. So we are working on a design to maximize our ability to visit all of them and help them with their journey. So we want to make time for them. We totally underestimate the value of time. And if you want to connect with your kids as they go into adulthood, You've got to stop what you're doing, be ready to sit on the couch and talk to them. Yeah, so for us, holidays, I know there some of our children's in-laws, having the, the holiday on the day and spending time that day together is really important. It's not for us. So the holidays for us, we might do Thanksgiving three weeks before Thanksgiving, and we might do Christmas two weeks after. But, but earlier in the year, we plan a date where everybody can get together. So our goal is to have everybody together in our house for the holiday. Yeah, so our kids are nurses, firemen, caregivers in this group. And so we send a text out saying, hey, what's your schedule? And we pick the date that most everybody can get together. And generally we've had everybody, but not yeah. always. But we try to do that. So remember, when it comes to children, you want to design a contagious life. Back to you, Jack. Great stuff. And, and the thing that they finished up with, we've been doing for a very long time. Um When when Dorothy and I moved back to Texas from our three years in Pennsylvania, this is long before the survival podcast was even an idea. So we're going back 16 years-ish or maybe a little more at this point. Um, we got to a point where there had been enough divorces in the family and enough in-laws that wanted things their way that Christmas became a fight. Christmas just became a fight of who was going to go where and when. And I felt very much that it was important that the entire family get together for Christmas and that there be zero stress over it. So I started hosting at my home uh, a Christmas party. In fact, you know what? I did that before we even went to Pennsylvania. D now that I think about it, I did that a year before we left, a couple years before we left. And we just had everybody come to the house a couple weeks before Christmas, and then everybody got to be together for Christmas. And then we simply say, for days like Christmas, New Year's and stuff, we're going to be here all day. Anybody wants to come by can come by whenever they want. And we just ask you to let us know in advance in case a bunch of people do it. Funny thing is, most years, by late afternoon on Christmas Day, almost everybody's at our house again. Because no one's compelled to have to be there. No one's guilted. No one fights. So everybody goes and appeases whatever uh, unreasonable family member they have that has to have things their way. And then they go where they really want to be. And it's interesting when you let people have freedom uh, how they will choose to exercise it. Uh, so I think that's a really great uh, tip and in, in addition to all the other things that were said. I want to talk a little bit about when you're in the coaching phase uh, that they mentioned and uh, a misunderstanding I think somebody had, John, uh, who commented on the blog about some things I said last week about basically, you know, and the point was that there's, there's no need to strike a child because you, as a parent, if you're doing your job right, have complete control over 
uh, just about everything that's important to them in their lives as far as things and access to things and stuff like that. And basically I said, you know, if I don't get compliance with things that I do believe need to be done and I've got a true disobedience pro problem, I'll take everything away if I have to. Now, I, now, here's the thing. I never had to take everything away. I just started taking things away. And as things started to go away, eventually it was easier to comply than it was to continue to lose access to privileges and things. And this is what John said. Regarding chores... I agree that chores should be required, in quotes, because children gladly do them when they are young. If they start when they're young, they continue to do them when they're old without complaint, usually from a young age. This is completely true, first of all. That's why last week when I made these comments, a guy was like, he, they're learning, it was an eight and a 12 year old, and one of the ages had twins, were learning about chores and fighting back. I'm like, if you're learning about chores about eight or 12, you got a problem. All right, so I agree with that part. With your response, I was thinking that taking someone's stuff wasn't necessarily the best thing in the world to do. To me, that feels like you're stealing their stuff. I think more natural consequence that follows is if you don't help around the house, then we won't help you either. So when mom makes you dinner, uh, you don't get any. When I do X, then you don't get any. If you need cash and you haven't done any chores, you don't get any. But once you have an item, it should be yours forever, no take-backs, unless you're doing something seriously self-destructive with the item. So would it be the except? So so it would be the exception, not the rule. I completely disagree, and I'm going to tell you two different reasons why. Uh, one, I already responded in the blog. We'll get to that as a second one. The first one is the first the way you're describing doing this puts you in an adversarial position with your child. I needed you to take care of these chores or do this thing or get your homework done or whatever it is, and now I'm going to make dinner and you don't get any. Well, now your child's going without food, and I'm all for letting kids get hungry when they refuse to eat. I'm not for not feeding them. You know, if that if I if I made you know hamburgers for dinner and you don't want hamburgers, then you can be hungry, but I'm not going to not feed you. It also puts you in a directly adversarial relationship with your child. You're almost having to taunt them into the consequence. Whereas the, the, the taking away of things and privileges and access to things more than the things themselves uh, puts them in a position where you have simply created a situation that they now have to deal with. You, you are as neutral a party as you can be in this situation. And I agree with the concept of actually stealing being wrong. So, so if I have given a child something, let's say I've given them for a birthday or just because I thought they deserved it and I want them to have it, uh, a video game system. I don't even know what kids play anymore. I'll say it's a, a Sega, whatever. And, and video games to go with it and a TV set so it can be played and they have all of that in their room. That is theirs. I'm not going to take it from them in that it is now mine and you don't ever get it back. What I'm going to do is remove their access to it because they haven't fulfilled the responsibilities in the home. It's still theirs. It's still theirs. They're going to get it back eventually when is completely in their control. And that is the point of this type of parenting. That what you're wanting to do is you create a consequence for improper behavior and you put the resolution to the consequence in the hands of the child. This is why I'm not big on you're grounded for a week. Right? That's, that's, that to me, okay, when you rectify the situation, then you get your stuff back. 
or your privilege back. Additionally, like what I said, that my number one method of dealing with this on the rare occasions that I had to by the time Matthew was old enough to have to do stuff like this uh, was the removal of his ability to access the Internet. That interfered with a thing called the sling box at the time, and it interfered with his games, and it interfered with everything. And all I did was change the password on the router. See, when it comes to things like cell phones, um, the cell phone is useless without the service. Well, unless that kid pays for that, it's not his. Internet access, unless your kid's paying the Internet bill, it's not his or hers. It's mine. And in the end, everything in that home Even the stuff that's his is first mine because it's in my home. Until such time that, you know, if we're going to make this, is well, you know, you don't just go get something stolen from you because you didn't do what you're supposed to do when you're an adult, uh, except like not paying the taxes, then they'll do that, right? Um, I understand what you're trying to say, but when you start paying rent, then I will treat you like a tenant. When you are living in my home because you are a minor child and you are under my care, I will treat you like a minor child, which means that if you are not doing what I need you to do, then I will remove from you certain things until I get compliance. It's not stealing. And so if I was ta if it was taken to be like, well, now this thing is gone forever, or I'm going to take it in my room and play with it, uh, no. It is, it is simply... Uh, a desire to be at in the least adversarial relationship with the child that you can possibly be. Because if you're the adversary, then you're the problem. If the problem is just something that you set in motion, and they have complete control over the ability to resolve the problem, then it's their problem. And this is why it works towards building strong young adults. Because that's how life works. When you create a problem in life, it doesn't matter if someone did something wrong other than you. When you've made any decisions that lead you to a point where you have a problem, it's your problem. Even if you didn't do it. I mean, that's the message of responsibility I try to teach you all the time for you guys that listen to me. If you have a problem in the world today... Even if somebody did steal from you or rob you or hurt you or whatever, it's still your problem to solve. So from a parenting standpoint, my philosophy has developed to be if, if they're going to put themselves into a bad situation, I'm going to create a problem that's relatively easy for them to solve, but I'm going to leave it up to them to solve it. That, and like I said, that way I don't have to argue. I don't have to fight. I don't have to raise my voice. The advice I gave my son with dealing with my grandson was get a whiteboard, write a whole bunch of things that you can take away from him on that whiteboard. As long as they're on that whiteboard, he has access to them. He can use them. And if he's, if, you know, I need you to do this, well, I'm not going to do it. Okay, just go in there, take the dry erase, and just take one or two things off the board until it's taken care of. And if it doesn't get taken care of soon, just keep erasing stuff until... We get to the point where, you know, all of a sudden somebody's motivated to actually get things done. It works really well. It's very easy. There's no arguing. There's no fighting. And if the kid gets upset about it, the beauty is you don't have to get upset back. Well, I hate you. No, I can understand why you feel that way, but I would solve the problem if I were you. And, of course, this is for kids who are a bit older, but, I mean, by the time they're seven, eight years old, you can use this, and it works, it works great. And John, who made these comments, I, I said, I don't want to assume anything. I could be wrong, and I know that. But you sound like you're either a brand-new parent or you've never parented kids because uh, the, whole, the whole philosophy there of, well, since you didn't help me, I won't help you, 
not only is it adversarial, it's probably because it's adversarial, it's not going to work. Because now you're the problem instead of they're the problem. You understand that? That's the key. When a child is doing something that in the real world would result in negative consequences, they're sheltered from those negative consequences because they're in your home. So there's a myriad of personal responsibilities that we all have to see to on a daily basis so that we can pay our bills and so that we can take care of our families and so that we stay in good health and you just name one after the other. And in the real world, feedback is relatively quick for most of it and it's painful so we comply with life. Well, that you put a bubble around them so that those problems are largely ineffectual unless you allow them to be or make them. And by giving them the ability to solve their own problems, you train them with that mindset for life. So that's my add-on to this. Now, real quick one before I wrap up today, I want to talk about somebody today put up a thing on Facebook, and it was, uh, again, Vermont is trying to change Columbus Day into Indigenous Peoples Day. And, of course, there's people on both sides of the thing. It's just a wonderful idea, and others consider rewriting history. And the ones on the people that think it's rewriting history say it's because you don't know the real history, and Columbus murdered a bunch of people, and he wasn't a great guy, and on and on and on and on it goes. And So I shared the article and said, if this is what you're worried about, you're worried about the wrong shit. Of course, this brought out the same type of people who were commenting on the first person that shared it, you know, the defenders of Columbus and Columbus Day and real history, and the SJW types that want to not rewrite history, but selectively correct history and ignore other history, such as, well, all of the indigenous peoples that were here displaced other indigenous peoples. None of them were the first people that got here, and most displacement of one group of humans by another group of humans generally in that time frame of the world involved killing them. And nobody's hands are completely clean in all this, and, and what I, but I don't even care about that. My point is, why do you let government define the meaning of a day for you? And why do you feel the need to compel government to redefine the meaning of a day for another person? You know what Columbus Day means to me? Jack diddly shit. I don't care. Something I want to buy might go on sale. That's the sum total of it. I don't care. So, well, it's a government holiday and they get off. I wish they were off all the time because it's when they go to work that they screw shit up. No government employee not doing their job has ever caused me a problem, right? So I'm back to the same thing, though. Let's not, let's not lose sight of the issue. Why do you feel that it's necessary to let government define a day for you or compel government to define a day for another person? Why? Because if you can't decide what a day means and doesn't mean for you, yourself, and you alone, what liberty do you have left? I mean, this is a liberty issue, right? Now, they can say whatever they want, and I don't care. They can call August 2nd Jack Spirico's a jerk day for all they want. I don't care. It doesn't matter to me. By the way, it's my birthday. I don't care. It wouldn't even offend me if it was about me. Jack Spirico's a complete asshole national celebration holiday. Okay, great. Spell my name right. Can you put my website up with my name? I mean, that, that mean literally. I don't care what they honor on any given day. If, if it, it either matters to me or it doesn't. And the words of a government official lacking any means of enforcement to me mean nothing. Now, 
if they said on Columbus Day, all people shall come out of their homes, raise their hand, and say, Hail Columbus. And if you don't, armed men with guns will come to your house and, and beat you up and take money from you for not doing it. Okay, now I'd care. Now I care. But we're going to shut down government offices of waste and not work on that day or interfere with the lives of people and do it in the name of some dead guy from several hundred years ago who was one of the early people to come here and claim to have discovered something that we already knew was here. I don't give a shit, and you shouldn't either. You shouldn't either. And if you do, like I said in my when I shared that article, you're worried about the wrong things. You're worried about the wrong things. And do you, like, like the, the concept is then... If we do this, we will somehow fix it. You're not going to fix it. And the people that most want shit like this are the people that do the least. It's always that way. The social justice warrior types, I want this fixed. We can do this, and then it will acknowledge. It will, it will accomplish nothing. And most of the people that are like, oh, we need to do this, have never done the square root of F all to assist a social justice, or sorry, an indigenous person, if you want to use that term, in any way, shape, or form. They haven't put a dollar behind their words or an action behind their words at all, other than commenting on Facebook and telling white people how bad they are while being white as the driven snow themselves. And what I said was, you notice how, and in one of the comments, you notice how none of these people that say this will ever just go back to Europe or wherever the hell they're from. And some idiot said, well, yeah, you, you mean like all those slaves that didn't go back to Africa. What are you talking about? I don't in general hear the African-American community making this case. I hear a bunch of spoiled little white boys and little white girls making cases like this. So you are the very people that you're condemning Why don't you sign your deed of your property over to a tribe and go back to Europe? Because it's unrealistic for you to be asked to do that. Because society is what it is today. And that's the reality. We are where we are. The entirety of human history is one group of people displacing another group of people. We're not going to change the past by selectively rewriting it or selectively correcting it. The past is what it is. But... Regardless of what the past is, man, days mean what you decide they mean. And the day you let government change that, you've just basically given away the last sovereignty you ever had, the sovereignty over yourself and what you think and what you allow yourself to think. With that, we've wrapped up another episode of the Survival Podcast. I want to remind you guys that you can help support us by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. i got a really cool, simple little item for you today. It's actually a twofer. One is... These little one-foot extension cords. One-foot, three-prong extension cord, male and female. And yeah, there's real male and female. That's how it works. It's one or the other. It's not both. Anyway, so you, why would you want a one-foot extension cord? You know that power strip that's under your desk that's plugged into another power strip? It's plugged into another power strip because all the crap for your computers and your routers and everything comes on those big honking plugs? Yeah, that way you can actually like plug it into the little cord and plug the little cord into there. That's one reason. Another reason, like all of our like our our roasting pans, our our pressure cooker, uh, electric pressure cooker, pressure canner, uh, our crock pots, things like that. All those appliances have ridiculously short cords on them, and they only need to be about a foot longer. 
I have an island in my kitchen that I put in. I have a power outlet right underneath the, the bar top on it. And you should be able to plug it. You, it just, you got to turn it sideways or whatever. And if you put like a six foot extension cord on it, a dog runs by, grabs onto it, yanks the steaming hot crock pot off, makes a big mess, possibly burns the baby. It's all bad, right? You put a little one foot extension cord on it, costs a few bucks, and you just leave it on there forever. And now you have a foot longer cord. Simple, cheap, easy solution. The other item, it has one male. And it splits out to four females, and it's all cords. It's only about a foot and a half long. And that's really good for the outlets. It's really I use it a lot with all the stuff from my fish tanks because all the pumps and the filters and heaters and all that stuff, they always have those big honking plugs. This is one of those things. It's not going to change your life. It's not going to save you from the zombie apocalypse. But it's a simple, cheap solution to common, annoying problems. The other thing is I have a couple of each in my blackout kit, and in my junk drawer. You never know when you're going to need them. And when you need them, you're like, I'm glad that's there. It's cheap. Check them out. You can find that and everything else that I recommend at tspaz.com. And you shop at tspaz.com. Even if you just buy something totally random of your own, you help support us in the work that we do. That brings us to the song of the day. Song of the day today is I Want to Make the World Turn Around by the Steve Miller Band. This is one of their... Later releases, they're best known for their music from the 70s, and they were one of the icons of the 70s, in my opinion. This was released in 86, and if you if you heard this song and no one told you it was a Steve Miller band, and you didn't know it was a Steve Miller band, you probably would never guess that it was. It has a very different sound to it. Um, the song has a very powerful message, and it fits right in with my segment about not letting the government tell you what a day means today, honestly. Though I doubt that's how Steve Miller band meant it. Um, what this song is, is about is how there's a lot of bad things in the world and we can either let them be bad or we can do something about it. I mean, that's really what it comes down to is in making changes and inspiring changes. The problem has become that what people think of when they think of changing the world today is we ought to pass law. We're going to go to the government. We're going to go to the state to solve the problem. I said in that thread where I was talking about the whole thing with Columbus Day is it amazes me that even today, no matter how long ago it was, even if it was hundreds of years ago, if the state caused a problem, people st still continue to rely on the state to fix it. In other words, Christopher Columbus wasn't some renegade when he came over here. He was sent over here, sponsored by a government, acting under the authority of said government, and everything he did at the time was legal as far as the state was concerned. Without the state, he wouldn't have had the money and the resources, but now we want government caused the problem, I know it was a different government, still government, um, to fix the problem by changing the name of the day on the calendar, as if that'll accomplish anything. Now, if you want things to change, you got to be the agent of change. And the reason people don't like that is people do, even in a day where so many people are so arrogant and think they're so more important than they really are, they do in their hearts know that they have a limit to how much that they can individually do and how much they can individually accomplish. So they want somebody to make other people do what they're unwilling to do themselves so the impact will be bigger. Well, that's not how it works. That's not how any of this works. When you go out and focus on the things that you actually control and expand your circle of influence so that more people will follow what you're doing by choice because you prove that it's a better way, Then you actually start to make real change. Then you actually start to get to the point where you really are 
going to, in the words of this song, make the world turn around. They don't mean rotate on its axis here. They mean turn back from bad decisions. We do that best through action and influence. With that, hope you enjoyed this week. Signing off for the weekend. Hope you have an awesome weekend and you get shit done and make the most of your dash over this weekend. It's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Save a human life